But anyway, we wanted to welcome you and say thanks for joining us. And um, we've been doing this now since October, and we've been talking to friends of the restaurant and people who've been in the neighborhood and in the community for, for a long time. And um, when we spoke to Gene Orza, he said, we, we especially have to talk to you because you were there the day that Joe Allen opened. Is, is that correct? Not Joe Allen. Orso. Oh, the day Orso opened. Yeah. Oh, okay. So what, do you have any particular memories about the, the opening day of Orso? Oh, yeah. I went down to go to the bathroom and the, uh, the door hadn't been put on the toilet. <laughs> well, that's yeah. That that could, that could be a problem. <laughs> have to have someone standing guard, I guess. Exactly. Welcome to Cocktails at Table Seven, inside New York's Joe Allen. In May of 1965, Joe Allen began life as a cozy neighborhood bar and restaurant in New York City's Hell's Kitchen. Located just a few blocks from Broadway, Joe's quickly developed a highly loyal clientele of young performers, writers, and creative types. The food was great, the drinks were stiff, and the fabled flop wall celebrating Broadway's most notorious bombs gave the room an added touch of insider charm. Over the decades, Joe Allen grew into a New York institution, and on this podcast, we'll celebrate Joe's history with longtime regulars who know it best. We'll hear from actors, producers, writers, musicians, neighbors, and friends who will share with us just what makes Joe Allen the place to be. So here's to old friends, new friends, and cocktails at table seven. Uh, yeah, let's try again. Five, four, three, two... So this week on Cocktails at Table 7, the star of Chorus Line, Lynn Cariou. Not a lot of people know about Lynn Cariou's history with a Chorus Line. The original Cassie. It was Cassie. I don't think even Len knows about his history with No, we spent 20 minutes explaining it to him, and he looked very, very confused. He was very confused. No, we're joking, of course. We're just kidding. We're just kidding. But this week's guest is... Mr. Len Cariou. A, a, a truly great actor, a truly imposing stage presence, and uh, a very generous guy who spent uh, an hour with us talking about memories of uh, his relationship and friendship with Joe Allen, his time when he first came to New York, and the sort of the excitement of breaking in on Broadway, and uh, of course, such a distinguished career followed. And um, it was a real pleasure to hear his stories. And, and particularly meaningful to the three of us because he was such a good pal to Joe Allen. And, you know, we got to hear things that we don't always get to hear about. To hear his, his recollections was really, it was quite moving for us and we really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, he's also Sweeney Todd. So we had some other things to talk about. Just that small, just that small thing. But a whole lot of, oh, all about uh, Sondheim and Prince, and that's amazing. Miss Bacall, applause, Broadway, yeah. Speaking of, speaking of Miss Bacall and applause, we did talk a bit about applause, and we didn't mention that the scene we were speaking about is set in the bar at Joe Allen restaurant itself. Right. If you get a minute, go to YouTube. They did a version of it on the Tonys, right? I think it was the Tonys, yeah. So, And it's this opening number of Applause the Musical set in Joe Allen circa 1970. It's fantastic. It's everything you would ever want from a clip. Um, and we also talked about the Little Night Music movie, and Len mentioned Liz several times. And 
we thought we should tell you Liz is Elizabeth Taylor. So I didn't even know that there was a Little Night Music movie. So that was news to me. Right. Well, there is. And uh, uh, it's out there and you can see it. And uh, uh, that's another thing you could see clips from on YouTube. But I think uh, to actually see the entire movie, you got to drop like a hundred bucks on a DVD from 1997. Oh, truly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I looked. Or maybe Laserdisc? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> another thing to mention is that Len is just as busy as ever. He's working all the time. He still does a lot of voiceovers. And he also is entering his 12th season of Blue Bloods on CBS, which is just an unbelievably long run for a drama series. And it's just great for him. And it's a New York show, which is which is always cool. But without further ado, here you are with Mr. Len Carreyou. That was nice. You didn't you didn't hit it too hard. Da, 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 da. Your history with the classics goes way back. That's something that you were sort of raised on as a performer. I know in um, that you worked at the Manitoba Theater Festival as one of your first jobs and that you did several seasons at Stratford in the 60s. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I started there in 1961, I think, at Stratford. But I was a founding member of the Manitoba Theater Center, which is still there. The next year after, uh, after the House of Atrus, I went to Stratford, Connecticut. And in the fall of 1969, we brought Henry V to the amphitheater. And then the next spring was applause. Right. So when you got applause, it was based on th- that you had you had been doing Henry V across the street, wasn't it? Like the theaters were right across the street from each other. Well, no, that's where I was auditioning. And, and the joke was that when they finally, I auditioned four times, I think. The fourth time when everybody was there and they gave me their blessing. It was the fall of that, October. And we were bringing Henry V from Stratford, Connecticut into New York to the Anta for like a six-week run. And the auditions were at the Alden Theater, which stage doors faces the Anta Theater. So I was coming in and out of the Alden Theater. And when they gave me the job, Ron Field, who was the director, came up to me and said, Len, I, I, I'd love to just say, give you the job right now, but I... They won't let me. They've got to do it, you know, through channels. And he said, but remind me again what you're doing. And I said, I said, okay, Ron, come with me. And I pointed across the street. There was three six-foot pictures of me as Henry. (laughs) (laughs) Ta-da! There you go. There's your answer. I said, that's what I'm doing. Ron feels it. Oh, fuck. (laughs) He says, I'm really sorry. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, do me a favor, bring them out the stage door here, including Miss Bacall. <laughs> so he promised me that he would. Yeah. So that's that's really funny. That's, yeah. I know that Lauren Bacall had done Broadway before, but this was her first time doing a musical. Musical, yeah. And it was an adaptation of a very, very famous, beloved film, All About Eve. Yeah. So the year, in I mean, that was the hot ticket that year. And that's when, that's when I you know, first met Joe. And we became pretty fast friends. We, we were gym rats together. Oh, okay. He taught me how to walk in New York. How so? He said, oh, yeah, this is how you walk. You walk this way to the corner, and then you cut across that way. And back through here, you can get a, there's a shortcut. So it was all through the, all through the, uh, the Broadway neighborhood. Like all the little hidden secret spots of Broadway? Yeah, exactly. 
That's so cool. Uh, yeah, I had a good, I had a good mentor. I just wanted to go back to because we were talking about applause, and one thing you being friends with Joe, I'm sure he mentioned to you that that opening number, which I just saw again, and the whole thing, the whole clip from the Tonys in 1970s on YouTube, right? Uh, the opening number that was on the Tonys with Bonnie Franklin, and um, it, it's so weird to see their recreation of Joe's. It's like a time machine <laughs> doing things on the bar side that we all know Joe Allen would never permit to. <laughs> What? There's no singing, no singing and dancing down the bar. You can't push all the tables together. And, <laughs> but it was really, I know he always mentioned that that number from applause really raised the profile of the restaurant. Oh yeah. And it's a, sort of, he marked it as a moment where the kind of the game changed in terms of how many people knew about it and how many people were coming in. So he was always very grateful for that. And it was so much fun to watch, especially the part where they're parodying all the shows that were in that era. So they do a Fiddler parody. They do a West Side Story parody. It's very funny. I'm wondering, did he get a heads up that they were going to do a number in the restaurant? Or is it just sort of a surprise that they wanted to write a number? Oh, no, I think he knew. Product placement. <laughs> he said, uh, you know, could we do this? And Joe said, kidding? Here, go ahead. <laughs> but, but then he was worried about, of course, having to put the poster up on the wall. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. Oh. <laughs> you know, he, was, he was spared having to do that. Right. And I said to him, I said to Joe, I'm never going to up on that wall. <laughs> some people are very resistant to it. And some people, you know, bring it and say, please put this up. Some people love to sit under their poster. They're like, I want to sit under, you know, Carrie. Every time I come in, I was in that show. No joke. <laughs> Badge of honor. <laughs> so I had a question. When you did Little Night Music, that was your first collaboration with Stephen Sondheim. Was it also the first time that you had worked with, with Al Prince? Yeah. Yeah, actually, you know, you might find this interesting. When, when we did Applause, we did a gypsy run-through at the Schubert. And it was my first show, you know. I didn't know, even know what a gypsy run-through was. And they said, well, what happens? So you had the piano on the stage and, and a little working light and a couple of props. And we invite all the gypsies in town to come and see this show that we're going to take on the road. And I said, oh, okay. So anyway, long story short, it's over. And everybody's coming up on the stage from the audience. And we, I got caught in a corner. Uh, people coming up because I was, you know, I was a, a rookie. And I was the new guy in town. And they were kind of interested in me. And in the middle of this, a guy sticks his hand in. He says, you're really wonderful. You're one of the best leading men I've seen in a long time. And I said, oh, thank you very much. And he walked away and Ron Field came over to me and said, what did Hal say? And I said, Hal who? <laughs> he said, I said, Hal Prince, you asshole. And I said, oh, I said, where is he? I didn't, I, he said, the guy with the glasses on the top of his head. I said, oh, oh, you really want to know what he said? <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I told him. And he was said, you know, I hope we can work together one day. And interestingly enough, when I was at the Guthrie then, I was back at the Guthrie after Oz, and uh, Hal, he said, would you come and audition for a little night music? And I said, okay, sure. He said, I'm sending you a script. He said, There's, Hugh Wheeler's written the book. There isn't any lyrics in it yet, but it'll give you an idea what the story is. And it was based on Smiles of a Summer Night by Bergman. And it read like, it read like, a, like an ennui play. It was really a really good book. So I was going to audition for the role of Carl Magnus. And I read it and I thought, well, I'm, I'm not really going to do Carl Magnus. I've done Carl Magnus seven or different times, but I'm surely going to sing for Sondheim and Prince, you know. 
we were running in, in rep at the Guthrie, and I had like a, a long weekend, which I wasn't working. And we arranged that I would come that weekend. And I auditioned, and Hal said to me at the end, he said, have, uh, we have a new script with a few lyrics in it. I'm going to give it, have them give you a copy of it. Read it over the weekend. Read it over the, overnight, and we'll talk in the morning or in the, tomorrow afternoon. And I said, okay. So I took this home and, and read it. And I, you know, the, the opening song now that Frederick sings is, I mean, just a brilliant, you go, God, this guy's a genius. Now as the sweet imbecilities tumble so lavishly onto her lap, now there are two possibilities. A, I could ravish her. B, I could nap. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's all I had. And I went, oh, Jesus Christ. And then it got, you know, that was the hors d'oeuvre. The hors d'oeuvre. Then he goes on. I mean, the, the lyrics in that number are extraordinary. Anyway, I read it. And Hal calls me and said, what'd you think? And I said, oh, God, what a wonderful first song. And he said, yeah, right. Well, we want you to play that part. And I said, what? He said, yeah. I said, well, Hal, he's supposed to be, you know, 10 years my senior in coding. He said, yeah, so what? We'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. So I went back to the Guthrie and said to Michael Langham, hey, I've been offered this musical to do. So I, I think that's extraordinary, don't you? And he said, yeah. He said, when does it happen? And I told him, and I said, well, we'd have to, you know, we'd have to, we'd have to open Oedipus the King when I was playing Oedipus. And then open it, and and, and then uh, I'd have to go to New York and, and start rehearsal in, in November. And he said, well, then you can't do it, can you? And I said, why? He said, well, because you can't just open a, a play in a rep company and then say goodbye and put the company back into, into rehearsal to replace the leading man. And I said, well, I guess you're right. I guess I can't. So I called Mr. Prince, and I said, Hal, this is the situation. And he was in Mallorca at the time, and I was calling him from Minneapolis, and I told him the situation, and I said, I'm, I'm afraid I can't do it. And I told him why. Wow. He said, I hope they know the, what, you, what they've got there. He said, I don't think any actors ever said this to me before. <laughs> and I said, well, maybe we'll find a, a way to do it in the future. So it was over. And about a month later, my agent calls me and says, you're sitting down because they changed the rehearsal schedule and now they're going to do it later and now they, they're offering it to you again. And I, I said, oh my God, okay, um, what shall I do? I went to the bosses and I said, this is the deal. And they said, well, we got to do this play at least four times a week because the stuff was going out of the rep. Yeah, they needed it. Right. And I said, well, we bunched them together or something. You know, we made up a ridiculous schedule and sent it to Hal. And Hal said, okay. <laughs> oh, he really <laughs> so wanted you. He really did. And I commuted in the dead of winter between Minneapolis and New York. I never missed a flight. I never missed a performance. I never missed a rehearsal. The gods were with me. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. That's, that's great. And then you got to be part of, uh, you know, possibly the, no. Almost definitely the greatest collaborating team on musicals that's ever been. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you about when you discovered Sweeney Todd had been written and the way you discovered that Sweeney Todd was happening. My alma mater, Manitoba Theaters, they called me and said, we'd like you to become the artistic director. And uh, I thought, well, that's an interesting idea. I said, okay, I, I would like to do that. And the board came to me, the board of the Manitoba Theaters came to me and 
and we made a contract. And the only way I could get out of the contract was if I got a Broadway show to do. So I'm in Winnipeg and I chose to do company as our musical for that winter. And I called Hal and I said, would you send me your stage manager's copy of, of the show so I could have it for my reference? And he said, yeah, sure. Oh, and, and, and by the way, Stephen's written a musical for you. Those are magic words. <laughs> Those are magical, magical words. Has he now? Has he now? Hmm. And he said, yeah, it's called Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. What? You <laughs> <laughs> Wheeler's going to write the book and I'll send you the book uh, when I give you the, send you the, the company. So I get it and I'm in rehearsals. So I'm kind of give it a cursory glance over lunch and I think, what? These guys have lost their minds. And I thought, no, better, I better not do this. I've, I've got a rehearsal this afternoon. I better shoot, just leave it and wait and give it my undivided attention on the weekend, which I did. And then I thought, no, I still think they're out of their minds. But if he writes a really romantic score, you know, it might work. And, uh, well, the rest is history. Mm. I'm curious as to how much revision was done because of how elaborate and how intricate the production was. Was there a lot of revision going on? when you went into rehearsal, or was it pretty much... Not a lot at all. Because what happened was that they said, here's your offer, and I go to the board in, at the Manitoba Theater Center, and I said, here's the part of the contract. And they went, mm, okay. So I was only the artistic director for that one season, and I got to uh, back to New York, and they're doing the film of Night Music in London. Well, they were actually in, in, in Vienna, Vienna, Austria. But they were recording the the show in, in London, so we'd have click tracks to use uh, when we were filming. But I wasn't in it until I get a phone call in the middle of the night saying, can you get on the next plane? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I do. And in the recording studio with the London Symphony, and this is how I'm going to meet Miss Taylor. So Hugh Wheeler meets me at the hotel, and he takes me over to the recording studio. And we go into the into the booth because you're trying to introduce me to her in you know in a less formal way, if you will. So uh, Paul Gemignani says, "Well, let's do uh, a reprise of Send in the Clowns." Len Carey was here, and he's going to come into the into the booth with you, Elizabeth. So I go into the booth, and uh, we say hello, and and they're playing the back the track for Send in the Clowns for the reprise, and she's terribly nervous anyway, you know. And she said, oh, I'm a little nervous here about it. She said, I'm not sure about when I can. I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just tap you when it's your turn. She the song. She just wasn't sure about the, the rhythm of it. I'll tap you on the shoulder. So we were standing at the same mic, which you couldn't use anyway. But it was a way to get a little more acclimated to each other. Yeah. So that's how I was introduced to Elizabeth. And she approved. <laughs> That's important. And so was that, so you went from that and then Sweeney was right, all happening at the same time. Yes. It was meant to be that fall. So I'm back in New York. I'm going to make a film in, in Calgary, Alberta. So I went to Hal and I said, I was going to miss, I was going to miss the week that the principals have with the orchestra before they bring in the rest of the company. And I was going to miss that. And so I said, do you think Stephen would give me the music to take with me? So I'm not behind the eight ball when I come back a week later. And Hal said, we'll, we'll ask. And we, we, you know, we did that. And then, of course, the, I got out there and the film went belly up. 
So now I'm back in New York with the whole summer with nothing to do. And uh, we're about to go, go, going to go into rehearsal in, it must have been early December. And they finally, everybody said, what are we doing? This is nuts. This is holiday time. Why don't we wait till after that? So now I'm, I'm dropping my head going, oh, God. I might as well learn this whole thing. <laughs> right. And so it, that, that's what happened. There was a, a delay of, of about a month and a half before we finally actually got into rehearsal. But it was it was as tight. I mean, you had Hugh Wheeler and Sondheim and Prince, and they had all worked on this piece that was, I mean, to see it now, the amount of it that we can see on YouTube, we can see little bits and pieces. I don't know, Dana, if you've ever been able to do this, or Jason, if you've ever been able to do this, but when I first got to the city, I went to the Performing Arts Library, and I got them to pull the original cast version of Sweeney. Sweeney Todd comes up here on our show often as one of our favorites. Everybody loves it. There's Everyone has a different connection to it, different characters and parts that are just have these visceral reactions to, but it comes up a lot in our conversations as like a quintessential, one of the quintessential musicals of our of our age. Yeah. Opening preview, because we didn't go out of town right because we opened and, and we previewed in at the Urus because of the set. I thought that's what I was going to say. It must be because the set is un, it, it's immovable. It's steel beams. Eugene had this great idea and he went and found a, an abandoned uh, steel mill in Rhode Island and uh, brought it into the Urus Theater. So opening preview, we were having problems with uh, technical problems. Because the pie shop that everybody, you know, and, and all of the actors were moving stuff. And they made it out of heavy steel, and it should have been aluminum. We never finished teching the show before we had our first our first preview. As soon as I we were done and had notes, I went to Joe, and I came in, and Joe obviously there had been people that had come to the first preview, and I came in, and Joe came over to me. Now, where's table seven? Is is it? It's the one all the way in the back of the bar by the skylight. I went to table seven. And I was, you know, it was pretty late. It was after midnight, I think. So I was there on my own at table seven. And Joe came over to me and said, uh, I hear it was a disaster. <laughs> and I said, well, we had a technical problem. Yeah, I said, but I don't think it was a disaster. Who told you that? And he told me who it was. And I said, well, that asshole, I couldn't believe it because it was somebody that I knew very well. And we both knew very well. And he was an actor. And I won't say his name, but I haven't spoken to him since. Oh. <laughs> well, don't be too upset, Dan. He's dead. <laughs> that makes it easier, I guess. <laughs> but that was the first preview. And then we, you know, we, we had some technical difficulties even through the preview period. But we finally got it. Finally got it right. They had to remake the pie shop and make it out of the aluminum that it was meant to be in the first place. So we got it fixed. It was a, interesting. So many actors are drawn to do that. If there's if there's going to be a benefit or there's going to be a revival or someone wants to do it, actors want to play those parts. And I'm just, I'm curious if it's because of darkness of it or just because it's so well-written or it's so intricate or what, what do you think it is that makes performers want to tackle those parts so much? Well, it's a work of genius and it's very difficult. So people who, who really give a shit say, oh, I want to try and do that. That's a real challenge. I had just done Lear the year before at the Guthrie. So I was I was good and ready. Mm -hmm. does, the, does doing that part for an extended amount of time, does that 
somehow affect you when you're not on stage? I mean, do you feel a little more tired or fed up with humanity? Or is that something that you can just hang up as you walk out the stage door and, and brush your hands off? Well, I think I was able to do that because, you know, you think, well, now, wait a minute. I better be careful here of what my, my ethic is going to be about this piece. But once it's in your voice, you know, people said to me, how did you do that eight times a week? How could you possibly do that? I said, once you'll know it and it's in your voice, it's like, you know, it's like falling asleep and waking up. And you obviously have to pace yourself. You obviously have to know what, it, what it's going to do. And after you've done it, in, you know, in a few previews, you realize, well, uh, this is what I need. I have to figure out what, how, what energy I need to do this. So I'll know how much I can drink. <laughs> I mean, you know, you got to figure out how you're going to fuel yourself. Was it fun? I mean, I feel like there are some parts of it that like have a little priest had to have been, there has to be some fun in there too, even though it's so dark. Was it, was it fun for you at all? Yeah, it's, you know, it's so good that it's just, you can't wait to do it because you know, you know, what's coming. But they don't. And you're going to get them. I mean, the first time I heard that, Actually, Stephen played it for me in his home, and I took that with me when I went to Edmonton. And I said, you know, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Is that him now? Wait, you get magical phone calls. That might be a magical phone call. <laughs> no, I can't imagine. Yeah, so he was playing. He played it for you in his. You had a recording of that song. No, no, he played it for me. I went to him to uh, take this music that he'd written. He said, okay come to the house and I got there he seemed nervous and I thought he's nervous I'm the one who's supposed to be nervous he took me into the into his where the piano was and uh, excused himself and came back with a joint and he let it and he handed it to me so what was I going to say no <laughs> so we had a couple of talks and then he said to me he said do you know the Catholic Mass for the dead I said Steve French Irish Catholic. He said, right, listen to this. And he went, ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. And I said, I don't get it. He said, that's D-A-Z-R-A backwards. Mm -hmm. Wow. Very clever. I turned the tables. D-A-Z-R-A, D-A-Z-R-A. And I said, oh, God, you're really sick, aren't you? <laughs> and he said, yeah, yeah. And then he played another couple of things, and then he brought out Little Priest. And it looked like the phone book, for God's sake. And I said, what is this? He says, it's, it's Act One finale. And I open it up, and I, I start to laugh. And he said, gets better. And uh, he played it through for me. And I was on the floor, literally on the floor. The jointed moon. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm curious. That song itself is filled with such great lyrics is there one of those that is your favorite because mine is shepherd's pie peppered with actual shepherds on top just the way that uh, scans is there one that you just giggle to yourself every time um that may be that one yeah dana you oh i never thought of my favorite one but that seems like it's the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sean's got one. The trouble with poet is how do you know it's deceased? Stick with priest. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine, you know, what it was like to have that debuted to, to you by Mr. Sondheim himself and just 
how extraordinary that must have been hearing that for the first time and then hitting the audience with it every night. Oh, yeah. You just couldn't wait. Thing, the one thing that was really marvelous was, uh, was the whistle. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Because parents would bring their kids and they'd sit them in the first three or four rows, you know, right behind the orchestra. And we used to peek out at the audience from the curtain backstage. And when, and when that first, right, people used to say, my dresser said, they hear that first time, their jaws drop and they stay there the entire time. Mouths agape. Well, I would have loved to have seen that in person, but I'll have to, I will tell you that cassette tape was played over and over again in my bedroom. And I think my parents thought maybe there was something a little bit wrong with me, but. (laughs) You know, there's a million other things we can talk about. We can talk about your film work. We can talk about. (laughs) (laughs) We want to thank you so much for sharing this stuff with us because it's, 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 it's great to hear about your friendship with Joe and the time that you, you know, you went to Orso and there was no door on the bathroom (laughs) 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 and your memories of the show. And before we leave, we like to do a quick little questionnaire like they used to do on inside the actor's studio, but we've Joe Allen did a little bit. So it has some questions that are specific to the restaurant. What's your drink? At Joe Allen. Well, in the in the day, it was scotch and soda. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I thought I'd be a sports announcer. Mm. Dana, actually, you had a mention about that. I was curious. You've done a lot of narration for different baseball things. Um, who's your team? The Mets. The Mets? Yeah. Back to the questionnaire. <laughs> Mets fan. Um, do you prefer the bar side or the main dining room? Um, I think the bar side. You know, and the, for the first four or five years, that's probably, I don't think they ever went into the other side. Are you a pre-theater or a post-theater person? Post. What live performance that you've seen floored you the most? Um, probably on Broadway. Anything, whatever, whatever comes to mind. Plummer. Chris Plummer. But I grew up with Chris. When I first went to Stratford, the Shakespeare Festival, he was the leading man. And he played Cyrano and Macbeth. And I learned an awful lot from him. And we became pretty good friends over the years. What's your favorite dish at Joe Allen, either past or present? Well, the meatloaf has always been good. They don't do it anymore, but they, one of Joe's first chefs. Henry? Yeah, was it Henry? Might have been. Henry, uh, Henry, Henry is sort of legendary. Yeah, and he made an agolamone, which is a Greek chicken soup. That sounds good. Oh, yeah. Nirvana. Was What's your favorite curse word? Fuck. <laughs> Hot fudge pudding cake or banana cream pie? Banana cream. Jason, do the honors. Oh, um, if you could pick just one word to describe how you feel about Joe Allen, the establishment, what might that be? One word? Uh, you can throw in two or three, sure. Home away from home. We look forward to seeing you at the home way of home as soon as uh, as soon as we can. We'd like to close with a toast. So let's raise a glass to good friends, great nights at the theater, and cocktails at table seven. Cheers. 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 Thanks. Thanks. Lad. Thank you so much. This was so wonderful. Cocktails at Table Seven is produced by Jason Woodruff, Dana Mirlock, and Sean Kent with theme music by James Rubio and logo design and artwork by Christina D'Angelo. Special thanks to the owners of Joe Allen, Orso, and Bar Centrale Restaurants.